Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly with you and I'm joined by Jan Fran. And Jan Fran, you got a crazy interview in this episode, the biggest tax fraud in Australian history. Yeah, Tom, I don't know. I reckon you've probably heard about it. Uh, it's been in the press for many years now uh, and this story has everything. It's a cast of characters. It's something out, like out of a Guy Ritchie film hmm. uh, set in white-collar Sydney. You've got like slick characters... Big money, a massive heist of $105 million from the ATO, and they're even double-crossing and ripping each other off. So, you know, they're, they're greedy, ambitious, highly educated, and morally bankrupt. Yeah, I like a Guy Ritchie film. You're going to learn about how a man named Adam Cranston and his associates, including his sister, rorted $105 million from the Australian tax office, where, I should add, their father was the deputy commissioner. There's so much to this story, um, which is why we've decided to actually split it over two episodes. Yeah, that's the bit that really gets me, that it's a brother and sister whose dad worked at the tax office and they Mm -hmm. were part of this crazy scheme. So, yeah, looking forward to hearing that unfolded in today and tomorrow's episode of The Briefing. Right now, the headlines, it is Monday the 27th of March. Well, we now have wall-to-wall Labor governments on the Australian mainland. This is as Labor's Chris Minns wakes up to what is his official workday as the Premier of New South Wales. Friends, after 12 years in opposition, the people of New South Wales have voted for a fresh start. That was Minns there giving his victory speech, sounding rather ecstatic. Um, It was a very big win for New South Wales Labor. They took nine seats from the Liberals, uh, meaning that they'll have at least the 47 seats that are required to form a majority government, uh, which is really a stronger result than many expected, Tom. Yeah, it was a huge win for Labor. They ran a really tight campaign and they had fairly simple messaging. It was fixing frontline services in health and education, tackling cost of living and putting an end to the privatisation of state assets. And I remember when Minns first took the leadership in 2021, Jan, and he just started banging on about tolls. Um, And it was an interesting one because tolls really annoy people in Sydney. Like They're so expensive. It's crazy. Worse than anywhere else in Australia. So it hit the hip pocket thing um, right as, you know, cost of living was going crazy. Inflation was going up. But it was also very symbolic because it symbolised the privatisation of of big critical infrastructure in New South Wales. And that was really on the nose with a lot of people too. He seems a bit like um, Peter Malinowskis in in South Australia, sort of young, a a slightly new generation of leaders, Mm. I suppose, sensible. Um, They've got a bit more of a kind of cooperative style a slightly different to, to Dan Andrews in Victoria, who's probably a little bit more of a, of a fighter in that sense. It is a bit of a new gen. I don't know if it's too trite to call it that, but that's certainly what it feels like in at least SA and New South Wales. Yeah, so we'll get to know him a bit more. But yeah, he's got three kids, grew up in St George in Sydney, um, very loyal uh, Labor man, campaigning for them since he was 18, along with his wife. Um, got into Parliament about eight years ago. Very quickly, as soon as he got in there, people were touting him as a future leader. So here he is. And Labor's win means the New South Wales Liberal Party is going to be doing some soul searching and some searching for a new leader as well. This is after the outgoing Premier Dominic Perrottet stepped down on Saturday night. Uh, I take full responsibility uh, for the loss this evening. Uh, and as a result, I will be standing down as the parliamentary leader. No, as the, 
as the as the parliamentary as a parliamentary leader uh, of the Liberal Party, it's very clear we need a fresh start. Question is who will lead that fresh start? The second um, strongest figure, former Treasurer Matt Keane, he's already said, not me, not contesting the leadership, uh, wanting to spend more time with his young family. Mm, so it was a is a terrible result for the Liberal Party, and they've had a number of terrible results. Um, they're in a, a very almost anemic state in WA. Obviously, we had the federal election where the Morrison government was smashed. And I think that's a big part of the problem. Um, I think Scott Morrison did so much damage to the Liberal brand. He made life a lot harder for Dominic Perrottet. And then they just had so many controversies and scandals and retirements. You know, even the way Dominic Perrottet became the leader 18 months ago was because Gladys Berejiklian um, was being investigated by ICAC. Then you had the John Barillaro circus in, you know, that appointment as trade commissioner that chewed up heaps of oxygen. And all up, Jan, there were 12 people no longer standing. So 12 retirements amongst Liberals and Nationals in New South Wales. So people were just heading for the exits. It was a really bad look. And it was sort of like Dominic Perrottet was the last man standing um, trying to win this election on his own, which was obviously impossible. The one thing that I sort of picked up was um, it seemed like, it wasn't a very vitriolic campaign on either side, which I thought was rather refreshing. Mm. Um, even Don Perrottet's conciliation speech, he had some very nice things to say about Chris Minns. And the bit that stood out for me was he said, and this is to everyone, you know, whether you voted for Don or you voted for Chris, he said, you know, get behind Chris Minns. Basically, mm. support him. He's a good guy. He won. Um which you know, I thought was a was a really nice thing to hear compared to the to what we're used to with um, federal politics, which isn't always the case, and certainly hasn't been at least in the last fifteen years. Yeah, look, it was nice, but was it very effective? Like Perrottet just got smashed, so you know it felt good, but maybe they needed to go harder on Chris Minns. Well, sure. I mean, there's there's much bigger questions around how the leaders relate to each other um, in in the election and why, in particularly in Western Sydney, why the Labor Party won a lot of those seats. Mm. The one thing we've got to kind of remember is the pandemic. I think you know it might be petering out, or we might have returned to some level of normalcy, but there is still a very big shadow that hangs over the city of Sydney, particularly in this east-west divide. So for people who, I know we've talked about Sydney a lot, I promise we will stop, but for people who, um, you know, don't don't live in this part of the world, Western Sydney had a very different experience during the pandemic. Um, they were sort of locked down a lot harder. They had to test a lot more. It was difficult getting in and out of certain postcodes. At one point, you weren't even really allowed to leave. And they would sort of watch the news and see all of these folks on the eastern suburbs on the beaches. Nobody was doing anything wrong necessarily, but it was very, very bad optics. And I think, mm. you know, um, if you're from Western Sydney and you've sort of gone through that, I think a change is something that you'd be after putting it mildly. Yeah. And South Australia has become the first state in the country to legislate an Indigenous voice to their parliament. So a special sitting of South Australian Parliament over the weekend passed the bill. With thousands of people gathering outside to mark the historic moment, here's their Premier, Peter Malinowskis. The one group of people that have been left most behind for the last 200 years are the very people who for over 65,000 years have provided great care and custodianship to the land we stand on today. 
Yeah, it's funny. We're talking about a federal voice to parliament and there's, you know, toing and froing and back and forth and will it and won't it and who agrees and who doesn't. South Australia just goes ahead and legislates it in their own state. Very minimal fuss there. Um, here's how it'll work, by the way. It'll consist of 46 elected members across the state. Those members will represent six regions um, and two members will be selected from each region. So that'll make up a body of 12 people and those 12 people will have direct communication um, to parliament and to government departments to advise on affairs that affect Indigenous people in that state. Yeah, that is such an interesting development. It will be very interesting to see if other states establish their own voice and what that means for the big national debate we're having about a federal voice to parliament. You know, I could imagine opponents saying, you know, this will be too complicated. We'll have different voices in different states and then a federal voice to parliament. Um, but on the other hand, maybe it's a, a step in the right direction and this is something that all governments need and it becomes a consistent feature around Australia that at every level of government, they make sure that they're speaking to Indigenous Australians and making sure the choices they're making are in their interests. And to the book that absolutely no one wants, uh, Prince Andrew is believed to be in talks with authors in the United States about releasing his own memoir. It's reported that he wants a tell-all autobiography to quote-unquote set the record straight on issues, including Jeffrey Epstein, and the book is being described by his friends, which I believe he apparently still has, as Spare <laughs> 2.0. Look, I think he wants the revenue, the money from Spare, but I don't know if he has quite the same story and quite the same level of interest or even respect. I'm going to say he doesn't. Mm. <laughs> I'm just going to come out and say, no, no, Andrew, do not do this. Even though you have some financial woes, apparently he's not received any money from his mother. Obviously, he's not a working royal anymore. He had to quit that over sex abuse allegations. So he does have financial woes, mm. but um, this is this is not a good idea. <laughs> you can imagine King Charles is like, no. Just a quick email to every publisher in the world. Please do not publish this book. Although you got very, very raised up about Harry's memoir. Mm. Maybe maybe you might you might also have a keen interest in this one. I'd be keen to hear your thoughts in a few years' time. Yeah, sure. I'll, you know, give it a read on professional grounds and give my <laughs> uninformed opinion. <laughs> All right, we'll catch you tomorrow, Tom. Up next, we're going deep on part one of the biggest tax rort in Australian history. In terms of tax fraud, this one was huge. $105 million allegedly pocketed. Adam Cranston was the mastermind. His father was the deputy tax boss at the time with no idea what his son was up to. A years-long dramatic saga coming to an end with five key players found guilty of one of the biggest tax fraud schemes in Australian history. This story is a little bit complex, but it is incredible in its twists and turns, so much so that we've had to split it over two episodes. So let's get into this story with somebody who has been covering it in minute detail. Brennan Hills is a journalist with the Weekend Telegraph and he's with me in the studio now. Brendan, I've tried to get my head around this story so many times and there's all these little bits and pieces and pockets of information um, and complexities that 
I don't know if it's just me, but I'm struggling with. So hopefully you're here to clarify it for us. I'll do my best. You'll do your best. Okay. Um, We know how the story ends, but Mm. I guess... I want to know where it begins. So can you can you take us back to where this whole thing started? Yeah. So it begins in about tw- 2014 and it's centred around a company called Plutus Payroll and that is bought by a person called Adam Cranston and that is a legitimate payroll company. It has clients that include government departments and IT businesses. Those companies need to pay their employees and they need to have their employees tax paid. And that's the service that Plutus is supposed to provide. So those companies pay all that money to Plutus and then they're supposed to divide it up and pay the employees and then send the tax money to the ATO. But instead of doing that, they send all of the tax money to a layer of second tier companies. So they're just like shelf companies. And instead of paying the money to the ATO, they give about 60% to the ATO in the hope that the, the ATO won't notice. And then the rest of the money is siphoned off through another you know, series of shelf companies or false invoices. The money gets paid back to Adam Cranston and the mm. people running the tax fraud scheme. And then they use that money to do all sorts of things like buy houses, develop properties, mm. buy sports cars go on expensive holidays. So who are these people? You mentioned the name Adam Cranston. Who, who are the key players? So you've got this? Adam Cranston, who is the son of the then Deputy Commissioner, Michael Cranston. Next to Adam, you've got a, a tax lawyer called Dev Menon. He was found guilty. He is helping Adam and the rest of the uh, of his syndicate to really on the the ins and outs, like how to avoid the ATO, how to structure the accounts, how not to be noticed. Uh, Then you've got another guy called Jason J, known as Jay Onley. He's an ex-professional snowboarder. He was performing a similar role to Adam in that he was receiving a lot of money through these shelf companies. And then you have Lauren Cranston, who is uh, Adam's sister, she performed a role where she was in charge of the, you know, operating the bank accounts. So sending the money to the ATO that they wanted to be sent and then the rest of the money, she's sending it off to, you know, the shelf companies and the false invoices and those sorts of things. There's about 14 people who are really key to the operation, but they're the main ones. So what were some of the things that they purchased with the money? All manner of things. Uh, Adam is a guy who likes finer things in life. He likes expensive wines. He likes holidays. He likes nice properties and he likes racing cars. So that's really what um, he was spending his money on. But it was a question of if you're using stolen tax money to buy these things, you have to figure out a way to disguise them. So Mm. uh, Adam buys a number of properties. Um, One of them's in Barania Bay in Sydney South. One's in the Hunter Valley and another one is in Miranda. And so just by way of explanation, in an easy way to explain it, uh, his name can't be on them. So then it's a question of, well, how can he maintain control of those assets uh, Mm. without his name being on them? So uh, for one of them, a shelf company was created and one of Adam's friends was put as a director of that shelf company and that shelf company, using the stolen ATO money, purchases property. Right. Nothing to do with Adam. His name's not on any of the paperwork, but it's his mate that runs this 
scam company. Yeah, so Adam is removed from the asset. So if someone comes looking, it's not in his name. Mm-hmm. So it's an attempt to to disguise his involvement or ownership of it. And in terms of like the shelf companies that were created, right? Mm-hmm. Like who ends up directing those shelf companies whose name yeah. is there as part of the body of people who work for them? Like how does that all work on paper? Yeah, so this was another this was the key part of how the operation works. So they have a series of shelf companies, but those shelf companies are being used to steal tax money. And eventually they're going to run into trouble. They're either going to be liquidated or the people who are the directors of those companies are going to be you know, charged or investigated. So they need people as directors who really doesn't matter what happens to them. So they need to be expendable. So they had one person in the operation who was in charge of supplying the people to be those directors. And so the police described them as vulnerable people. Mm. Um, you had people who lived in public housing. You had uh, drug addicts, disgraced businessmen. These were the people who were uh, the directors of those companies. And so... And what's in it for them? Why would they say yes to being a director of one of these shelf companies? Some, they were just paid a nominal amount, somewhere around you know, $1,000 a week. So they're getting paid more than presumably they would otherwise earn. And then if they run into trouble, they're expendable. So if the company gets put into liquidation, if they get banned from being a director, it doesn't really matter because... You know, they're not operating in, you know, white-collar life. So mm. if one of these uh, vulnerable people gets banned from being a director or being, you know, they might have gone to jail previously anyway, they don't really mind. And there was someone in this operation that was tasked with finding these people? Yeah, a bloke called uh, Daniel Rostenkowski. So his job was to provide what the straw directors, as they were known, for these companies. Right. I mean, this sounds dodgy as hell, <laughs> to, to put it simply. And when you're talking about defrauding the ATO, like the ATO's job is to look for people who are not paying it the right amount of money and go and find them, mm. right? So it feels like there, it was a very risky game to get into from the beginning and that the ATO was going to notice. I don't know if mm. I've read the room correctly on that. Where did it all start to unravel? Absolutely. To, to me, it looks like a suicide mission. Like they stole $105 million, which is just such a lot of money. So any right-thinking person, you would put this scenario to them and they think, it, they'd tell you, it's, it's so much money. It's always going to get noticed. And that's exactly what happened. So the ATO started to notice the shelf companies were missing a lot of payments or there was a lot of tax outstanding. And so they issued what's called garnishy notices to those companies, which is just basically, you haven't paid your tax, we are going to come and take it from you. And so when that started to happen, then that's really where it started to fall down because the ATO zeroing in on them, there's millions of dollars owed. And so these guys had to find a way to either borrow that money from other companies to satisfy the ATO or just find a way to cover it up. Mm. And so that's what they were attempting to do but obviously without success. How did they attempt to do that? It was either paying some of the money, but then when it really got to the end point, they were looking at a scenario where 
they were either going to have to rely on the directors of these shelf companies, so the vulnerable people, to either sit down with the ATO and explain what was going on, but that was a problem in itself because these are people that they looked at and went, there's no way the ATO is going to believe that these people that we've installed as directors were capable of running these companies. So it was either that, but then they resolved that maybe we should actually hide these people, so send them overseas or just tell them to live at another address, that sort of manner. And was there a moment where things turned? Like, do you know what the turning point was for the ATO or the Australian Federal Police to go, hmm, we need to look into these guys? What was the spark? I don't know exactly, but only that the ATO was noticing the amounts and that at some point the Australian Federal Police became aware and launched an investigation where they put listening devices in boardrooms, uh, they tapped people's phones. So those two things in conjunction with each other was what brought it down. And then after the ATO started issuing uh, garnishing notices on the second tier company, the investigation from the ATO and the AFP actually found its way to Plutus, the company, and started linking people like Adam Cranston to the second tier companies and they started putting the pieces together. And when you say they started putting the pieces together, we're talking not just about anonymous bods at the ATO, we're talking about Adam's dad, Michael Cranston. Mm. He had nothing Mm. to do with the investigation per se, but he was the deputy commissioner at the ATO at the same time that it would then later transpire his son was defrauding the ATO. That's right. That was Brendan Hills, journalist with The Weekend Telegraph there, talking to us about one of the biggest tax frauds in Australian history. And you'll notice that we've got way more to say. That was just episode one. Episode two is out tomorrow, talking about that incredibly complex relationship between father and son and how that plays out in this story. Make sure you listen tomorrow. Catch you then. Listener.